Lord, there is none like you. God, you are the one who set the foundations of the earth. God, you were the one who told the seas where to start and where to end. God, you silenced the storms. God, you, you, you create new life in us. God, I pray this morning we can hear your voice. That we can hear what you have for us. God, there is, there is nothing, no moments where we know everything about you. There is always something new. And God, open our hearts this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. It can be found starting on page 811 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Um, I'm Steve Bryan. Um, I'm, uh, we're, my wife and I and son, we're going through the new members uh, process here at Trinity. And if you're thinking about membership, I just encourage you, I don't want to be standing up here by myself here in a, in a few weeks. So um, I think that process begins here in, in, a, in a week or two. And just encourage you to, to join, us, join us in that. Um, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, so we're returning to our study of uh, Matthew chapter chapter 6. We've taken uh, a bit of a break over the uh, past few weeks as in the lead up to, to Easter, and now we're jumping back in where we, where we left off. If you remember, um, over the past few weeks, um, we, when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we were looking at the characteristics and the conduct of disciples as Jesus taught in in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that's easily misunderstood about the Sermon on the Mount is, and about uh, Matthew chapter 5 in particular, is that we come away with a sense that we're supposed to try harder. We read the Beatitudes and we come away with the idea that we should try harder to be more merciful, more humble, more 
righteous. Work harder at being, being peacemakers. Or we read the antitheses at the, uh, that make up the last half of chapter 5. And we come away with the idea that we need to, to try harder to be less angry. To be less lustful. To be more truthful, more loving toward people who, who wrong us. But the problem with a kind of try-harder approach to the, to the Sermon on the Mount, try-harder as a reading strategy for the Sermon on the Mount, is that it doesn't seem to fit for a lot of what we read in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I mean, how many of us want to put more effort, for instance, into, into mourning better or mourning more or more effort into being persecuted more? How many of us look at the righteousness depicted in the antitheses at the end of chapter 5 the, and think, well, you know, I think if I just put in a little bit more effort, I could, I could out-Pharisee those Pharisees. And they tried really hard, obviously. I could just try just that much more harder than they. The problem with this way of reading is that I don't think that's what this, Jesus is up to in the Sermon on the Mount. See, the Beatitudes are not really teaching, that what we have to, teaching us what we have to do in order to be blessed. Rather, they're simply describing the way things are. They distinguish between the way things appear in a world that values success and property and comfort from this new world that Jesus is describing and calling the kingdom of heaven. The world over which... God reigns as the unchallenged king. Perhaps it's, it's helpful to think about this kingdom as a kind of different country. Kind of that going into that country or, or entering into that country means that you enter into a, a different kind of culture. So the Beatitudes are not so much requirements as announcements. This is the way things are in this new country. That's good news. And so the antitheses are not so much intensifications of the demands of the Mosaic law. It's simply saying, this is how the law works in this new land, in this new country. This is how the law works in this country over which God is the unchallenged king. So what we find then in the Sermon on the Mount is a kind of summary of Jesus' proclamation of the good news, announcing this is what it's like in this country. This is what it's like in this new, in this, in this new culture. If you've ever visited another country, you know that one of the first things that you know, kind of stands out is that things work differently. You go into a new country and the culture is different. And one of the key things about culture are the relationships. And the relationships work differently. Some of you know that um, our family spent about 24 years working as missionaries in, in Ethiopia. And the first time that I went to, to Ethiopia, I was walking down the street one day along with a student. He was showing me, uh, <clears throat> showing me around a bit. And he reached out and took my hand. And it wasn't just like, you know, this kind of casual thing. It was like full interlocking fingers. And he didn't just, not just for a minute, it was like five minutes. We were walking down the street hand in hand. 
And I don't know whether you felt my palms sweaty or felt, you know, sort of my breathing, saw my, I was having difficulty breathing or, or, or what, but, you know, I didn't say anything. But what I wanted to say is, you're freaking me out. Relationships work differently. John Stott calls the Sermon on the Mount a manifesto of a counterculture, a manifesto of the culture of the kingdom. This is the way it works in the culture of the kingdom. This is how relationships work. And first and foremost, this is how relationship works with God. First and foremost, within the culture of the kingdom, we relate to God as a generous father. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. And he says it in many, many different ways through the, through the Sermon on the Mount. But it's, it's super important in the passage that we're looking at for that to be sort of our point of departure. In the culture of the kingdom, we relate to God as a generous father. Depending on what background you have, what cultural religious background, that can seem perhaps a little strange. I think probably was strange to Jesus' first hearers. I mean, if you, it's not that maybe that idea was completely foreign. If you read the Old Testament, you occasionally come across this idea of God as, the, as Father. It occurs about 15 times in the Old Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, here in just three chapters, Jesus refers to God as Father 17 times. In other words, what was you know, sort of anticipated, you got glimpses of it here and now, here and there in the Old Testament, Jesus makes that the kind of defining way to think about God, the characteristic way. This is how, in this new country, this new culture, this is how relationship with God works. He's your father. This is perhaps unusual also for those who grow up in certain kinds of religious backgrounds. In Islam, Allah is never called father. Never. Perhaps you grew up in an Orthodox or, or, or Catholic background. It's, and certainly the idea that God is father is present within Orthodoxy and Catholicism. But there's a much greater tendency to think of God as, as far away. And so you approach him through intermediaries. Mary's the safe one, the motherly figure. You go to her first. And maybe that idea is born out of, out of cultures in which the father is kind of this re- emotionally remote person. Mom's the one you deal with. But even in our own sort of cultural moment, the idea, the concept of fatherhood is, is kind of problematic. According to the Center for Disease Control, in two, uh, 2016, 40% of all births in the United States took place to, uh, to women who were not married, to the, to the fathers of those children. It's become such a common feature of our own sort of culture that uh, the New York Times, uh, in a recent article, sort of tried to normalize it. And the, t- the, the title of the essay was, Single Mothers Aren't the Problem. But the problem is not that the fathers have gone missing, according to to this essay. It's that we we stigmatize single parenthood, and we don't provide enough government benefits. But the problem isn't that 
the dads aren't around. What was interesting was that a few days later, the Washington Post has had this sort of, you know, the newspapers, the, you know, the major national newspapers, they don't usually sort of get into kind of chirping fights, you know, sort of with, with one another. But the Washington Post had this scathing response, like, you know, don't you read statistics? Can't you see, you know, sort of the impact on poverty that, that, you know, that's, you know, growing up in a household with just one parent? You know, what the, you know, see the correlation? And I suppose that many of us grew up, who grew up, you know, where, where fathers were, were either physically absent or emotionally distant react the same way as the writer of that Washington Post rebuttal. He he was saying, how can you say that fathers don't matter? To say that fathers don't matter just doesn't match with our experience. Think, for instance, how, how many of us come from families where fathers were mostly uh, uninvolved. Maybe they stepped in occasionally to kind of harshly discipline us. Maybe they stepped in to kind of make major decisions for you as you as you grew up, without really involving you in those decisions, or or perhaps how many how many of us bear kind of the wounds of of fathers who were abusive in some way? How many of us can't come from cultures in which fathers kind of demand absolute, unquestioning obedience without sort of offering any kind of context of emotional emotional connection or or intimacy? How many of us grew up with fathers who, who kind of only criticized and, you know, sort of a constant disapproval and the kind of misguided assumption that that would motivate us to be better at sports and school without ever sort of indicating that they, any kind of sense of approval at all. Maybe for, because our fathers passed away or for some other reason weren't, weren't there, we simply knew, didn't know what it was like to have a father. So many of us, perhaps maybe even all of us in some way, feel the effects of the imperfections of our fathers. So it's just that much more unexpected that this is how... This is the, 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 the way in which Jesus would teach his disciples to think about God. He's their father. For all of these reasons, many of us struggle to understand what it means for God to be father or to embrace that as an idea. Um, but that's precisely what Jesus calls us to do. It's precisely how he calls us to think about God. In this culture of the kingdom, God is a generous father. In 10 of the uh, 17 times that he refers to God as father here in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he has this descriptor, and we find it in this text. He is the heavenly father. He's the heavenly father. One of the things that kind of stands out about this, these descriptions of God is that he's described as sort of occupying different space. He's, he's heavenly. At least that's how we think of it. But I think one of the reasons that Jesus constantly characterizes God as the heavenly Father, as he does at the beginning of the, of the prayer that we're going to look at, is to establish a kind of contrast with 
their experience of earthly fathers with our experience of our fathers. We see this sort of implicitly in, in, in the description of God as a father, but then when we get down to chapter 7, it becomes very, very explicit. He says, your, your fathers are like this. It's particularly striking in verse 11 of chapter 7. He says, he says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give good gifts to those who ask him? What's he saying? He's saying, fathers, earthly fathers, they're evil. There's no such thing as a dad that's not bad. (laughs) All dads are bad. They're evil. We all are. But even evil fathers, even fathers who are evil, they know how to give good gifts to your children. There's this kind of contrast that Jesus sets up between the heavenly father on the one hand and our earthly fathers on the other hand. You don't expect fathers to do evil to, to, their, to their children of the sort of, at least not in the sort of, you know, sort of obvious way, the kind of, sort of cruel, mocking evil of a father who's, whose child asks him for a, you know, a nice piece of cod and he gets a cobra instead. It's not that. We're asked for a, a, you know, a, a piece of bread and he gets a stone instead. It's not that kind of mocking cruelty. But they're still evil, Jesus says. And the reality is that even though evil, evil dads, evil fathers can still sometimes manage basic goodness in response to the, the requests of their children, God's not like that. God, our heavenly father, is holy. He is consistently, persistently good. He's not mean. He's not vindictive. He's not arbitrary. He's not capricious. He's not cruel. He's good. He's generous. And so when you ask him, he gives. He's consistently, utterly good. So he's not like, he's not an earthly father. And then the second clarification is that he's not a distant father. We have this mistaken idea about heaven, I think, and, and, and that's probably what we need to clarify in our thinking to get an idea of what Jesus is talking about when he refers to God as a heavenly father. See, the, the, many of us grow up with the notion that because God, and more specifically God the Father, is in heaven, that means he's far away. We don't sing it here, but there's, there's a song, kind of a, I think it was popular a few years ago, called God of Wonders, and it has this line in it, God of Wonders beyond our galaxy. You know, it, it kind of cultivates, oh, I kind of like this song, it's a catchy tune and all that, but it kind of cultivates this idea that God is somewhere in deep space. You know, he's way, way out there. <laughs> so that's how it sort of, you know, sort of encourages you to think about God, to get an idea of, I guess, of his greatness. But what it tends to suggest that he's, he's really, really far away. But for Jesus, when he talked about God in heaven, he didn't mean to cultivate an idea that he's far away. It was a way of talking about him as someone who is 
indescribably close. You say, heaven? Close? You know, we think of heaven, we think of the skies and, you know, way up there. But I don't think that's what Jesus means when he talks about heaven. We get some indication of this in the, uh, in, in the passage just before and just, uh, just following it. If heaven is not exactly the, the realm of, you know, the way out there or just, ex- you know, sort of the invisible realm, if that's not exactly what it is, what is it? And what, what Jesus says is that your father sees in secret. That's what he says initially. But then in verse, uh, in verse 4 and uh, in verse 6 and in verse 17, the, the verses just following, just preceding and just following the passage that we're looking at this morning, he doesn't just say that the father sees what happens in secret. He says your father is in secret. He is in secret. What does that mean? Well, to be in secret in the context of this passage, is it's, it's the world of thought, of, of motivation, of intention, of desire. He's, he's, he's that close, in other words. He, he knows what our secret thoughts and motivations are. As, as he says in the, uh, in the opening passage, your father knows what you need before you ask. How can he know what you need before you ask? Because he's there in that kind of motivation or intention or desire that you don't even know you have yet. He's there. That's where he is. That's heaven. In some sense. Because that's where God is. The father who is in secret is so impossibly near that he's able to see what would normally remain hidden because he is in that place. That space. You see, what Jesus is saying is that in talking about our, our heavenly Father, he says our, uh, he's not far away. He's not far away. He's in heaven. To talk about God being in heaven or our Father being in heaven is a way of describing his closeness, how near he is, not how far he is. Not only is he the heavenly father, he's also the generous father. The generous father. We've already made reference to chapter 7, verse 11, which describes the father as one who loves to give good gifts to his children. He's not really talking about gifts in the sense of presents, like these kind of unexpected holiday special sort of gifts. I suppose God does give us those as well. But he's talking about all the things that the Father gives us. In the context of chapter 7, he is in particular a father who loves to impart wisdom to his children. He's a father who loves to give us what is good. And so when we ask for what is good, not just what seems good to us in the moment, but what actually is good, what is his response? Sure, you can have that. I'd love to give you that. But the problem is that fundamentally, we don't, we don't think about God as a giver. We don't think about God as, as the one who loves to give his children gifts. 
Jesus says, well, you know, the way that we usually think is about God is the way that pagans think about their gods. And how to, because on two occasions he contrasts an understanding of God as Father to an understanding of pagans and the way that they relate to their gods. So he says, uh, for instance, uh, a little bit uh, uh, later in chapter 6, in chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 31, he says, uh, uh, so don't worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we, what shall we wear, for the pagans run after all these things. Why? Why did the pagans run after all these things? Because they think... And Jesus says, often we think that the things that we have are the things we got for ourselves. And the things we need are the things that we have to get for ourselves. So we have to run after them. Filled with all of the stress and, and anxiety. And Jesus says, that's a pagan way of looking at life. It's a pagan way of thinking about God. It forgets that God is a giver. So Jesus tells his disciples not to be anxious about the things that they need. The pagans run after all these things because they think that what they got is what they got for themselves. What they have is what they got for themselves. And what they need is what they have to to run after to get for themselves. They don't think of the things that they have. All of the things that they have are things that came to them through ordinary means, certainly, the things that they have are the things that God gave them. But there's a second way we think about pagans, and it's the first thing that he talks about in the passage that was read for us earlier in verses 7 and 8. He says, uh, And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. They think that they will be heard because of their many words. In other words, if you are a pagan, if you practice traditional religions, we saw this often in Ethiopia, how do you get the gods to give you things? Because the gods aren't just sort of sitting up there sort of passing out gifts. If you're going to get something from your god, you've got to pry it from his clutched fingers. You've got to figure out how to manipulate your god, manipulate your spirit through the right techniques through the right sequence of words, by saying those words often enough and loudly enough and fast enough that finally he will be induced, maybe out of sheer annoyance, (laughs) to open his hands and give you what you want. Jesus says, God's not like that. He's not a father, so when you pray, you don't have to pray like, like the pagans pray. You don't have to make sure you get the words loud enough and long enough and repeated frequently and fast enough to induce God to give you what he otherwise wouldn't. That's to imagine that God's like this. And that somehow, through the right techniques, you can get those fingers off that thing that you want and it will finally drop from his hands and you'll have it. That's not who God is. It's a pagan way of thinking about, about God. I remember um, one time when we were in Ethiopia, walking into going into an Orthodox church, and there was a there was a man sitting off to the to the side. The men and the women were were separated, but he was sitting off to the side, and 
um, and he had a prayer book. And the prayer book was in an ancient form of, uh, of Amharic, it was Ethiopic. Most Ethiopians don't understand it. They can read it because the script is the same, but the language is basically a dead language. So apart from the odd word, you might not understand any of what, you're, you, know, what, what, what you hear. So he was, he was reading um, from the Psalms. He had no idea, as far as I could tell, that he understood what he was saying. But he was reading so loud and so fast, and it went on for so long, that finally the priest came over and told him to shut up. <laughs> you're bothering every, everybody else. But he obviously had this idea that if he, if he simply read the prayer book fast enough, and loudly enough and long enough that God would respond to him. We find this in many, from, in many religions, you know, whether it's Muslims reciting the 99 names of Allah over and over again, or, you know, other f- religious practices in which very repetitive prayers are uttered um, in order to get the gods or God to do something for you. It's a very, very common way of thinking about gods. But not our God. Our God is a father. Jesus says, don't babble like pagans, thinking that you have to, to, to pry open his fingers. He's a generous father. He loves to give you gifts. And we've mentioned these alternate perspectives, but many evangelicals are, are taught very early on that somehow it's inappropriate to kind of rush into God's presence with all of your, with all of your requests. I've, you know, a very common model of prayer is based on the acronym ACTS, ACTS. I, I kind of like it. I've taught it to my kids and I've taught it to, to, to other people. You know, prayer kind of has four components Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And sometimes I've heard this taught. You've got to make sure you keep them in that order. Because God doesn't like it when you kind of just rush into his presence, you know, sort of with all the S's, with all the supplication. And you skip the adoration, the confession, the thanksgiving. In other words, you kind of need to butter God up a little bit. Tell him how great he is. You know, he's wonderful. Thank you for all the things that he's done for you. And then he'll kind of be sort of favorably inclined toward your, toward your supplications when you finally get to them. It's a very common way of thinking about God for us as, uh, as evangelicals. It's a little like, you know, sort of the teenage daughter who says to her dad, Daddy, you're the best dad. And a little while later, Daddy, I just love you so much. You're wonderful. And then a little while later, Daddy, you think I might be able to get a new dress for the prom? You know, Dad, their, their age-addled minds would never make a connection between those, <laughs> those, those events, between all the adoring words and the ask. Well, speaking as a dad, you know, I can sort of cop to being dumb, but, you know, we're not that dumb. 
And God's not dumber than your dad. But if you've thought about prayer in those terms, it might come as a bit of a shock to realize that what we have in the model prayer that Jesus then teaches his disciples is only requests. All requests. Only S's. Seven supplications. Seven requests. Now, it's important to understand um, that these, these gifts... These prayers, then, are prayers for the good gifts of the Father. We're asking God for things. We're asking him for for good things. And it's important as we understand this prayer that it's addressed to a Father who is generous. And that that's our primary relationship to him. And it's important to remember as we come to this to, the, to, these, to these requests or come to the, the specifics of this prayer, that he is a God who, as a father, loves to give good gifts to his children. And so what, is, what Jesus is teaching his disciples is to think about the sort of gifts that God characteristically gives, the sort of gifts that God loves to give. So in this last this last uh, segment, then, I want us to think about, very briefly, about each request as gifts of the Father. These are the things that God loves, as our Father, to give us as his children. I want us to do things just maybe a little bit differently toward the end of this. After all, these are prayers, voice to God. So I want us to spend the rest of our time sort of in a disposition of, of prayer, I'm going to briefly describe each request. And I just want you to think, or maybe with the person next to you if you want, um, to pray something that God brings to your mind as a kind of specific expression of this request. So let's enter into a time of prayer. You can go ahead and bow, and I'll just be speaking, and then I'll be silent before going on to the description of the next gift. It's very, very important for us to think of each of these as gifts that the Father loves to give. The first gift. Our lives, our communities, a world in which the reality of God and his presence are sacred. This is the, the positive form of the third commandment. Do not profane the name of the Lord, but the name of the Lord is treated as a holy thing. It's the first gift that God wants us to give us, wants to give us. God's name represents his reality. So when God gives this first gift, it means that we get to live in homes, in communities in a world where his reality and his presence are treated as the holy, weighty things that they are. It will be reflected in speech that is worthy, worthy of God, because it helps others, in worship that is weighty with the presence and reality of God. 
language about God that is heavy with wonder. second gift the Father wants to give us as his children. Lives, communities, a world in which he exercises his just and saving rule. God's kingdom comes when his just and saving rule invades our lives and our communities. His kingdom comes when people's lives are transformed by the gospel, by his grace, creating new relationships marked by generosity and mercy, creating organizations in which people are treated with fairness and compassion. These are the gifts of the Father. This third gift, our lives, our communities, our world, in which human desires and actions line up with God's intentions. When God gives this third gift, we get not only lives that conform to God's desires, but we get to live in homes and communities where people desire what God desires where they never do what he hates and never fail to do what he loves, his will is done. fourth gift of our Father, a life, a community, a world in which daily needs are daily met. Daily needs are daily met. Most of us don't live as day laborers, as many in the world do. That's probably why Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. It's a prayer that we pray in community 
not a prayer for our, our greeds. It is the prayer for our collective needs. This might mean that you pray for more income so that the daily needs of others might be met by what you earn. Fifth gift of the Father is life, a, a community, a world in which forgiveness is, is freely received and generously given. Jesus speaks about debts. Financial debts are created when there's a difference between what we owe and what we pay. But moral debts are created when there's a difference between what we did and what we should have done. And the difference is, moral debts cannot be paid. They can only be forgiven. And we incur them every day. We incur them with God, and we incur them with others, and people incur them with us. And Jesus establishes a kind of correspondence. This is your Father's world, a world in which his people joyfully extend forgiveness and joyfully receive forgiveness. They live without shame and debt because their Father has forgiven them and they have forgiven those who've incurred debts with them. sixth gift, a life, a community, a world empowered and enabled to resist the appeal of wrongly ordered desires. God won't lead us into temptation. He will cause us, when we ask him, to stand in the face of temptation. Temptation. One final gift of the Father to his children. Because evil threatens us in more than one way, not just, the evil one doesn't just tempt us, he assaults us. And this last prayer is a prayer from rescue, for rescue. 
from the evil one. Not that Satan singles us out. Jesus never teaches his disciples to directly address Satan in the context of prayer. But evil originates with the evil one. And the evil that we experience on a daily basis, we escape only through deliverance. It can take so many different forms. Perhaps you're conscious of the onslaught of evil in one particular area of your life. In early Christian tradition, they spoke of acedia. Temptation appeals to desire. Acedia is the absence of desire, indifference to life, kind of listlessness that leaves us spiritually apathetic and lethargic. Maybe that's the assault that you experience. Is what the monks called the noonday demon. It's like spiritual tar from which we have to be rescued. Or maybe you feel like you're in spiritual quicksand. You've set out to do something good only to find your efforts undermined by malice or jealousy. Or pointless resistance quickly swamps your desire and threatens your desires to drown out your desires for the good. But your Father offers us, offers you the gift of deliverance. Amen. I've yet to meet a person who thought that they had mastered prayer. I certainly haven't. And I've purposely not wanted to to preach a sermon admonishing us to pray more. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing in this prayer. I don't think this passage calls us to focus more on prayer. Instead, it calls us to focus more on the Father, to focus on the fact that we have a Father, to relate to Him as the generous Father that He is. And when we focus on the Father, when we see that He's not some faraway God, some emotionally distant being who can only be, be reached through some Herculean effort, but rather a Father who is impossibly near and extraordinarily kind and generous. We will do what any child would do with that kind of father. We'll ask him for things. And he'll give them. This is grace to us. The grace of a father like that. As we grow close to him, we'll find that these seven requests of the Lord's Prayer are really just descriptions of his best gifts. The ones that he loves to give the most. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that we would not stress over prayer, but that we would love you as a father and find that in relating to you as this extraordinarily generous father that you indeed are, that you've revealed yourself to be within this new culture that is introduced to us in the kingdom of heaven. We would want to to ask you for things. We would draw close to you. We would want to be in your company, to enjoy your company and your presence, in which asking you for things is the most natural thing in the world. We do love you. We do adore you. We confess our shortcomings. We're thankful for all the things that you've done for us. we confess those things too infrequently we nevertheless come to you with the firm faith and knowledge that you love us that you are infinitely kind extraordinarily generous that you are our father